You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring Christians to apologetics, and today is no exception. We're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus today, which, on a Christian apologetics podcast, that's a pretty good topic to cover. Did it happen? Why should we think it did? <clears throat> and we can go out and read the best works of Christian scholars, but what about non-Christian scholars? What would they say? Where to discuss it, I brought on Justin W. Bass. He has a PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary in New Testament Studies. He formerly debated Dr. Bart Ehrman, Dr. Richard Carrier, and Dan Barker, who I've debated as well, and Mufti Hussein Kamani. <clears throat> he currently lives in Amman, Jordan, serving refugees for an NGO, and he is professor of New Testament at Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. His latest book is The Bedrock of Christianity, Beyond Autobot Facts of Jesus' Death and Resurrection, released April 8th, 2020. He has also written The Battle for the Keys, Revelation 118, and Christ's Descent into the Underworld. When he is not working, he is reading, watching movies, usually The Lord of the Rings, and spending time with his high school sweetheart, Allison Bass, and her two kids, Ariana and Christian. So, Dr. Bass, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Nick. Really appreciate you having me on. And let me get this out of the way. I wanted you to know that I affirm the virgin birth. Uh, I'm very pleased to hear that, and I also affirm the virgin birth, of course. So, if uh, my audience doesn't know much about you, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? Well, uh, I would say it really began about 20 years ago. Uh, the Lord brought me to himself when I was at SMU, Southern Methodist University, which is... Um, school in Dallas, Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm from, where I grew up, where I was raised, pretty much Plano, um, went to Plano East and um, ended up going to uh, SMU, was getting a business degree. And basically, long story short, the Lord transformed everything about my plans and my goals uh, as, as I became a Christian. And um, soon after that, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, got a master's got a, a PhD, and throughout this entire time, I had been just on fire for evangelism and, and really apologetics, because immediately uh, I was kind of thrown into the lion's den because some of the professors at SMU were uh, extremely liberal. In fact, one I found out later um, was even a disciple of Bart Ehrman, somebody I took three classes from uh, at SMU. He, he actually studied under Bart Ehrman. And, uh, and was bringing those Bart Ehrman-level arguments against Christianity. So, so right from the beginning, when I came to Christ, I was, I was evangelizing, so I was engaging with Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, atheists, and so really uh, starting to engage in, in the, on the apologetics front, but, but specifically New Testament-type apologetics and scholarship, uh, historical Jesus and uh, evidence for the resurrection. That was there from the very beginning, uh, specifically because of that professor 
at SMU. He, I saw, I actually saw other Christians there lose their faith uh, while they were uh, in my class, and that was because you know they really just had second, you know, third level, third grade level uh, education of Christianity, understanding of Christianity, and, and it was very sad. And he was just a brilliant, you know, professor and presenter and charismatic and really knew how to present that biased, uh, one-sided um, view of, of Christianity. But it but it did the opposite to me. It got me reading N.T. Wright. It got me reading Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson, um, William Lane Craig, and, and many others that, that I discovered, C.S. Lewis, obviously, uh, in those early days. So really from that point on, uh, apologetics, evangelism has always been uh, a real passion for, for mine. So I wanted to go as deep in the Word as I could, and that's why I got the degree at, at DTS. And so I've been uh, engaging in those things in different ways, whether debates or writing or uh, just every day talking to people uh, about Christ. I've been living in the Middle East as well for the last three years. And so engaging uh, Muslims and even, you know, atheists that are over there too um, with with the gospel. So, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit of my background. Yeah, there's at least one way our paths have crossed before. And I think another one, I meant to ask you this in show prep before, and I totally forgot. I think I was there. I sat in one of the sessions you did at the uh, Defend the Faith conference in New Orleans one time. My wife and I were invited one year, and I got to speak there. Uh, am I remembering that correctly, or was that someone else? You, you. I think you are. Uh, now that I think about it, I've been to I've been to New Orleans, but I think I was there to attend another debate. Mm. I think I went there to to attend the debate between Mike Bird and Bart Ehrman. Mm. So I didn't speak at it. So that must have been somebody else. Okay. But I, I I was there mm. in New Orleans. It was it was about a year. It was about a year or six months after I debated Bart Ehrman, Mike Bird. Mm. Uh, from Australia yeah. made them, and I went. I I, I drove up with some friends, mm-hmm. and we uh, we attended that debate. Yeah, and for us, our interest, Mike Bird has been on this show a, a couple of times. Wonderful guy, and if you excellent. ever read his books, they are absolutely hilarious. And yes, uh, they are. I, I can't but wonder if now I've had something to do with the humor that you included in your book. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you noticing that. Yeah, it, it's 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 never fun when uh, people ask a question about a joke you made. What, what are you saying there? <laughs> Uh, it's a joke. <laughs> but for, so I love it when people actually get my jokes. But for where our paths have crossed is that you and I have both debated the, the Dan Barker before. That's right. That's right. And I just watched your debate, and you did an excellent job. Uh, he's he's really a sad sad case, mm-hmm. and um, and so but but thankfully, more and more Christians are, are I think continually planting the seeds mm-hmm. in his heart, and so hopefully, the Lord will bring him bring him back, mm-hmm. or just bring him to himself. Mm-hmm. So. Now, let's get into this book here, The Bedrock of Christianity, and I like how it starts off, because I know this isn't a debate in the academy, but you do include the idea that Jesus never existed, first off, because sadly, if you go on the internet, this seems to be like the big, hot topic that scholars are debating. If you go to the academy, they're not debating it at all. No. It, it, it barely makes a footnote. You know, I mentioned that in the book that, you know, bar- it barely makes even a footnote in these books. John P. Meyer, in his multi-volume work on the historical Jesus, I think he devotes one footnote to dismiss uh, G.A. Wells, the, the the popular mythicist of the mid-20th century. Yeah, uh, Mike Lacona does the same thing in his uh, book on the resurrection of Jesus. I think mean, he even compares him to flat earthers. Mm. 
Right. Yeah, and I, I compare them to, to Holocaust deniers. I mean, that's pretty much how they're viewed, at least from the, the rest of scholars. The way historians view Holocaust deniers is pretty much the way biblical scholars, you know, ancient historians, uh, classicists view mythicists. And it one interesting book on this is the book Five Views on Historical Jesus. Um, Robert Price, yeah, he's the one who gives the view that Jesus never even existed. And two different scholars respond the hardest to him. Known one of them is not Daryl Bach, the evangelical, who of course did give a good response, though, but uh, John Dominic Crossan, of all people, yeah. gave a very hard response to him. And then James yeah. Dunn came and said, gosh, I didn't even know people like this still existed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like as Christopher Hitchens used to say, it's an argument I forgot I had to have. Yeah. But, but since this is part of your debate thing, that we do need to discuss a little bit because it means, Dr. Bass, don't you know about a Dr. Richard Carrier who has just, you know, totally demonstrated the world with such powerful arguments in his book, um, on the historicity of Jesus, why we might have reason for doubt. I mean, obviously, since you still believe in historical Jesus, you've never read the book, right? Obviously, obviously, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I debated Richard Carrier. Uh, he, I actually wanted to, you know, I, honestly, I wouldn't actually, probably on my own, I would never spend time to debate someone like Richard Carrier or, or a mythicist because I just really think it's it's not mm. worth the time. I think someone is not intellectually honest if they are taking that position, if they really understand the evidence like Richard Carrier does. Um, I, I really think he's more probably pandering to his audience. Uh, I don't think uh, he could really deep down believe this. Um, so I did debate him, but it was because I was invited by an atheist group. In fact, they were called Mythicist Milwaukee. Oh, gosh. They, they, invited, they invited me to come to their conference. They actually had a uh, uh, kind of a bar pub uh, conference at, at this bar, bar and pub with uh, different speakers and different debates. And it's actually the one that um, Robert Price debated Bart Ehrman at. The, the, I was the first debate with Richard Carrier. And then six months later at the same conference, uh, Robert Price and Bart Ehrman debated. But I was invited to this and, and, you know, it's an atheist conference. And so, hey, you know, I don't care what the person believes. If, if I have the opportunity to share the gospel and the truth of Christ with 200 atheists, as I did, and there were, there were only four Christians in the room. So it was a it was a wonderful experience. I really was thankful for that. And, and I actually like Richard Carrier. I, I had no problem with him. I, you know, we had a good time. We actually were at a house uh, with a, a large uh, the group. All the leaders of Mythicist Milwaukee were all together the night before, and we hung out together. And I really liked them all. You know, I, I just don't think uh, I think someone like Richard Carrier, he has to know better. Uh, many of the others, I think, are just you know they've they've really never heard kind of the outside um, arguments, and uh, and so. But that that was that was a great experience. But yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with his book, and I've read most everything he's written because in preparation for that debate and. And uh, yeah, I just think think it's it's the equivalent of uh, flat earthers or moon landing deniers and that kind of the kind of arguments you find there. You, at, on the surface, you might see some things that are persuasive, and then you go deeper and you find how how ridiculous it is. Yeah, there is uh, some uh, people from Memphis, Milwaukee, showed up on Unbelievable in the Facebook group a few years ago, and I still remember so much how they argued because it was so intensity horror they shared this meme with a quote on it from Celsus and they referred to him as an early church father 
Do you right. all know who this guy was at all? And they could never seem to admit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually reading Origins Against Celsius right now. I'm in book two. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting, of course, but someone could be listening and saying, yeah, but I'm encountering these mythicists. I mean, why should I... What what can I say to them other than, you know, mythicism is stupid or mythicism is like flat earth thinking? I mean, why should we reject mythicism? Well, yeah, I, th- I think my counsel would be, and I found, you know, if if a person is genuinely asking for the evidence, we should give it. You know, we should we should give the reasons, the strong powerhouse, you know, evidence that we have, these multiple sources beginning with Paul, beginning with the earliest traditions within Paul's letters, but also the Gospels, also the Sermons and Acts, also Josephus, also Tacitus, also Pliny the Younger. You know, we, we should go down the list and lay it out for them if they are genuinely seeking. And then usually their response to that, you'll, you'll, you'll have a pretty good idea of whether they're, at that point, you'll, you'll probably know whether they're genuinely seeking or they're just really kind of brainwashed into this you know, kind of in a, in a cult-like mindset of, of the mythicism and there, you know, no, no amount of evidence will really persuade them. So, so I, I but I think we should genuinely talk to them. I, I, I think, you know, quoting Bart Ehrman is very powerful here, you know, bringing in his book, bringing in the, the great quote, you know, that he gave at that, uh, it was actually at that, that Dan Barker group that gave him some, some award and, you know, the vast majority of the followers of Dan Barker were mythicists as well. And so they, they challenged Bart Ehrman at the thing. And he, he basically just, just ripped them to shreds in that speech and just said, you know, you really just look foolish. You know, y'all just need to get off this mythicism bandwagon. I mean, this is just that you're just looking foolish to, to the rest of the world. So I, I think, I think, I think using, you know, the, the example of Bart Ehrman to show that he, here is someone who clearly is in no way for Christianity, in fact, writes many things that many would interpret as as against Christianity, and uh, and he is he is saying how ridiculous this is, and then and then here's the evidence, you know. So let's let's look at the evidence. Here's the actual evidence, and so and so and especially you know people like you and I and others that that actually understand what Carrier's saying, I think is important too, because a lot of people will dismiss Carrier with actually understanding what he's saying, and I think that it's important that we actually understand what he's saying if we're going to respond to people that, that are following him. Okay, but could you give, like, a brief two-minute case that Jesus existed, let's say? Well, I, I mean, I would start with the way I begin in my book. So I, I would say, you know, what are, the, what are the sources that everyone across the board, whether Jew, whether atheist, agnostic, you know, that, that teach in, in seminaries and, and universities across the Western world— what are the sources that everyone agrees are accurate, that, that, that relay correct historical information, um, that were written by the person that, that um, says that, that they wrote it in the, in the actual letter? And when you get down to it in the New Testament, we're dealing with Paul. So we're dealing with the earliest letters of Paul. Uh, uh, I really focus on the four, but there's seven that, that, that are, are agreed upon across the board, Galatians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon. But I focus on Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and, and, um, and Galatians because they discuss not only Paul's early movements uh, in that first decade after Jesus uh, died and rose again, but they also uh, have traditions about Jesus, not only about um, his death and resurrection, but also about him uh, becoming God. I mean, not coming God, how he is God, how he, like Philippians 2 is what I'm thinking of, how he, who in being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. 
um, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God raised him up to the right hand of God. And every knee one day will 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 bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And so in those traditions and in those statements from Paul, we learn that Paul spent time with Peter. And we learn that Paul spent time with James, uh, Jesus's brother. And interestingly, we also find when Josephus mentions Jesus, the, the indisputed the undisputed passage in Josephus that definitely is just talking about Jesus, he mentions that James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death, and this would have been around 62 AD. So we have this 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 incredible uh, agreed upon uh, corroborating evidence from a Jewish historian like Josephus with Paul, who again everyone agrees that Paul wrote that, and Paul knew these people that he's talking about, James and 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 Peter. And so here we have Jesus's brother mentioned both in Paul and both in Josephus. So I would say that, you know, just that alone, you know, not even looking at all the other vast amount of evidence there is for, for Jesus throughout the Gospels, throughout Acts, in uh, other places like Tacitus, I would say just the fact that we have this powerhouse, um, as, as certain as we can be historically, that Paul was spending time with his own brother, obviously, his brother would know whether he existed or not. <laughs> as Brother Herman says, and it's very good you corrected yourself and I'm talking about Jesus being God instead of becoming God. Been, I'm, I'm getting that from, from Bart Ehrman's <laughs> book. You know, he, he has his book is How Jesus Became God. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but, but, but Mike Bird has the right book, How God Became Jesus. Yep, and that's one that we interview him and a few of the co-authors on as well. So um, when now when we go through your book more, you start talking about doing time traveling. That's very interesting. I'm sure my science and science fiction readers would love to hear how in the book of Historical Jesus you talk about time travel. <laughs> yeah, I use the, you know, the, the classic film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which conveniently is coming out with a, with a uh, I guess, uh, some would think it's a sequel because they only know about the first one. There's actually another one called Bogus They're Bogus Yep. In the in afterlife, but uh, that wasn't very good. But the first movie's a classic, and they're actually making a new one. It's coming out, I think, later this year. COVID probably put it back. I don't know, but um, but yeah, I use them as as kind of the uh, fun illustration of of how studying history really is the the closest we're going to get to time traveling. I mean, I when I study history, when I read you know eyewitness accounts or somebody who knew, like for example, I, I read all these reminiscences of of uh, C.S. Lewis students of his, and they talk about you know, the way he would pronunciate words. They talked about the way he had all these books in his office. You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of time traveling to that, to those, you know, tutorials that he did back at Cambridge or, or uh, Oxford that, or he would actually spend time with the students. I'm getting a taste of what that was like to actually sit under the uh, tutelage of C.S. Lewis and the books that he would recommend. And so that's just one of just so many examples. When we study solid history, when we're reading a solid eyewitness account which we have, for example, uh, as all the scholars agree with Paul in the, in the earliest letters, we are able to go back to uh, those earliest days, whether it's 2,000 years, whether it's 4,000 years ago, as long as we have a solid historically, historically eyewitness account, then we can time travel as far as back as we have, as we have those accounts. So, so I use the example of like Peter and Paul when Paul says he spent three years I mean, I'm sorry, three years after Paul's conversion, he spent two weeks with Peter in Jerusalem. And, uh, and and we don't get all the details of that, but we can time travel and get a taste of what it was like for Paul, two great, greatest apostles, Paul and Peter, to actually spend time together. And Paul, as I said, mentions how he spent time with James. 
So there's so many other things like the crucifixion or the earliest disciples' experiences of the, the risen Christ or the earliest days of the Christian movement. There, there's so many different things that we can time travel to because we have such solid historical information and eyewitness accounts in our New Testament. And so I, and so that's the kind of the, the, the journey that we take through history, jumping into the uh, the phone booth from uh, Bill and Ted's throughout the book. You're, you're, we're journeying through different different uh, time periods in history. Yeah, the, the fanboy in me is just screaming out of excitement now because I mean, I've only watched Bill and Ted like one time, but I know Keanu Reeves was in it. And I'm totally getting yes. so excited for Matrix 4 coming out <laughs> next year. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that'll be. I hope they don't ruin that. It seems like every time they they do something new with these great earlier movies, they've yeah. been ruining them because they they become woke or something. You know, they yeah. just they just get ruined. Yeah. Now, but hopefully, hopefully it'll be good. Right. When you mentioned the account between Peter and Paul, I mean, I thought we all knew they just talked about the weather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. That they they talk about a lot more than the athletic competitions that were happening in uh, Greece at the time. Yeah. Now, something you did say I wanted to speak about is that you talked about if we have eyewitness accounts, uh, we're in a good position. But the interesting thing is, what many people don't realize is that for a whole lot of ancient history, <clears throat> we don't have eyewitness accounts. Like if you're looking at the lives of Plutarch, I'm not sure if he was if he had access to eyewitnesses for any of his life, at least at his time, he had to use ancient sources that predated him for those lives. Yeah, and, and you know, I use uh, one of the examples I like to parallel with Jesus that I use in the book is uh, is Tiberius Caesar. I mean, here we have the the, the Caesar, the, the emperor of Rome, the emperor of the Roman Empire that Jesus was crucified under, that, that reigned from 14 AD 14 to uh, 37 AD. Definitely the the most powerful man in the world. The only person that you probably could could compare to him would be whoever was the ruler of China at the time. I mean, we're talking about one of the most powerful human beings on planet Earth at the time. And our best sources for him, as far as uh, uh, telling us about his life, were written 80 or more years after his death. We're talking about Suetonius. We're talking about Tacitus. You know, the, these these right. We have a little bit. We have a few things that are earlier. But as far as full accounts like what we have with the Gospels of Jesus, we, we, we have to wait 80 years after. And, and we don't and we do not have eyewitness accounts. And so it's incredible that we have better if, if the gospel writers are eyewitnesses. And if Paul really did meet with, you know, Peter and these others who were eyewitnesses to Jesus's life, we have multiple eyewitness accounts of Jesus's life, who was just a Jewish, a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified under Tiberius Caesar. And yet Tiberius Caesar, the most powerful man we have, uh, we don't have direct eyewitness accounts. It's an, an incredible thing. And and there's, like you said, there's many more examples that could be added to that. Yeah, well, one I, the ones that I use are Hannibal, Queen Boudicca, and the German general Arminius. You have zero contemporary witnesses their lives and they all did astounding feats in their lives and this is and i usually bring up when arguing of jesus mythicist because you know the argument from silence is practically the only argument they really have and i say yeah so these figures that did so much they weren't worth writing about in their lifetimes apparently but this a uh, crucified failed messiah figure and I say fail not because I think he's fair, but because everyone else who has seen him as a failure in their lifetime. This, this fair crucified Messiah figure who never really left Israel, never led an army, never wrote a book, didn't establish a school of thought, 
that didn't run, hold any public public office whatsoever, and had a reputation for doing miracles, which would make him seem like a terror evangelist today. Yes, that's the one everyone should have been writing about. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's 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 really incredible. I mean, when you really study it, that that I mean, we're talking about the single individual who was crucified in the backwaters of the empire, mm-hmm. uh, among tens of thousands of others who were crucified. I mean, I, I think about your. You know, Johannan, you've heard of it, you know, about Johannan, who was uh, the man that we had, we discovered his actual bones yes. and the nail still in his, in his bone. You know, we only discovered anything about him in 1968 when they discovered his ossuary with his bones and the nails in it. Uh, but, I mean, he was just one of tens of thousands that, that were crucified. That just, you know, the memory of them were just wiped off the face of the earth. But for some reason, this crucified man has a third of the world now following him now. You know, and, and he fills the libraries of the world with uh, writings about him. It's just, it's just truly incredible. I remember your former debate. Opponent Richard Carrier once gave a talk to some students, and then he was c- making this claim about uh, the whole idea that uh, there was more evidence of a res- there was more testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, I think, than Caesar crossing the Rubicon. And I'm not going to get into that argument whether that's valid or not, but how is how uh, Richard Carey says, oh, all the great historians of the age talk about it, and he refers to people like, like Appian and Plutarch and Livius and a few others. He doesn't mention to his audience that the earliest these guys would have been writing would have been 100 years after the event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that, and, that's, and that's kind of a, a, a trick that a lot of times not just carrier, but many will do, they'll, they'll bring up somebody and compare it to Jesus. And then when you actually do the homework, you find that we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years between the person they're talking about when we had the first writings about them. And then with Jesus, we're talking about with Paul, we're talking about within 20 years with the gospels, we're talking about within 30 to 60 years at most. So an incredible difference. Yeah, some people might be surprised that you jumped to Paul so quick because a Christian is going to be saying, well, geez, Dr. Bass and I open up my Bible, the Gospels are first and Paul is later. If we're wanting to learn information about Jesus, why would we go with Paul first instead of going just straight to the Gospels? Yeah, that, yeah, that, that, no, it's an excellent point. And many do, uh, and, and, and many can do it different ways. And you can begin with the Gospels, obviously, because the Gospels give us, you know, the birth accounts. They give us, you know, some, some of the earliest uh, days of Jesus. They give us a embarrassment of riches of, of the life of Jesus. I mean, his miracles, his exorcisms, his, his actions, his teachings, his obviously his sufferings, his trials, his death, his burial, his resurrection. I mean, there, there's just an embarrassment of riches in the Gospels. And so we should never neglect them. But... If you're going to do the approach like I'm going to do, like I did it with my book, and that's really the, the approach I take if I'm going to debate and going to discuss things with someone like a Bart Ehrman type mindset, uh, a skeptic of, of, of that nature, I think we have to reach them where they're at. And to reach them where they're at, you have to go where they agree. And so, so someone like Bart Ehrman and, and people like that, they across the board will agree with Paul. So they agree that Paul wrote those early letters that I, that I quoted before, that I, that I uh, la- uh, listed before, and they'll agree that Paul is quoting within those letters traditions and hymns that he received going back to those earliest days of the Christian movement, which we're talking within three to five years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So 
So I, I feel like we get everything we need when it, when it, when we talk about, like I, I refer to it as the bedrock of Christianity, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. We get everything we need with Paul. And so I want to start there to persuade the skeptic. And then from that point, then we can go to the Gospels and learn everything else about this man, Jesus, who did rise from the dead. But I, but I want to start with Paul as kind of the, the foundation, as kind of the common ground foundation at bedrock of, of, of how to persuade them and lead them down the path of the evidence that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nick is and all that he does is his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. Now, some people will start with an objection about Paul, is that Paul doesn't really tell us much about the life of Jesus. Like, now, if you read Paul, you won't know about, say, the miracles of Jesus or the parables of Jesus, or as I found out in a now very famous, or as I heard about, <laughs> I knew about long before that, as I heard about in a very famous encounter, or at sparked up my own personal saying he doesn't even mention the virgin birth which i do affirm so why <laughs> why is it that uh, that paul doesn't tell us all these things well the, the, the well this goes to the the really what, what what we call the you know the occasional nature of his letters so his letters really are you know they're not except for romans i will put romans aside here but Really, all his letters are letters that he is sitting down to write, or really <laughs> dictating to a uh, amuensis who is writing them, to deal with issues that are going on in the churches that he's writing to. So whether it's the church of, the, uh, of, of Thessalonica, or the church, church of Corinth, or the church of uh, the Philippians, he's, he's dealing with specific issues that are going on in those churches. So when that issue is relevant, intercedes with something with the historical Jesus, Paul always brings up Jesus. And so I find, you know, a, a, there is a large amount, actually, even though we don't, we definitely don't have as much as we have in the Gospels, but we do have a large amount of information about the historical Jesus. For example, Paul's dealing with the sin, the sinful actions being taken at the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, with, with what's happening in Corinth. They're, they're clearly people coming in, they're, they're bypassing the poor members of the church, they're drinking too much of the wine, they're actually getting drunk at the Lord's table, and some people are sick, some people are dying because of the Lord's judgment. And so when Paul discusses that and rebukes them, he reminds them of the fact that he relayed to them the information, the, the same information that we'll receive later in the Gospels, which is that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, um, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he, and he gave it to everybody. And he said, this is the cup of, of my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, remember, remember me. So he's quoting Jesus directly that we then get those same accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
later because that they chronologically they they would be have been written later in the in the three gospels but paul is already relaying that tradition that's going back to probably you know his time with peter and james and the earliest uh disciples of jesus uh, that gave him that information about the betrayal of judas about uh, what jesus said at the lord's table and so see we're, we're getting a lot of key information about jesus just from paul's statement in first corinthians 11 we're getting his, his probably the earliest sayings of jesus actually we have in the new testament and so in other places he appeals to jesus's humility he appeals to the fact that jesus doesn't fight back he let the insults of people fall on him he points to jesus's meekness he points to um uh, jesus's teachings about missionaries that uh, when he quotes from uh, luke 10 so he he, he is referring to Jesus regularly and constantly pointing to him as the exemplar. But there's no doubt for Paul's main purposes throughout his letters, he is emphasizing more the, the death of Christ and the resurrection life of Christ that he's focus on, focusing on for these, these disciples of his. We could best compare it to a sermon at, at a church service on Sunday that you don't hear everything the preacher believes which is the point with what I with my own thing about the virgin birth, which I do affirm over and over. That you don't hear this every time because these are occasional letters. These are meant to just deal with a particular problem or in a particular way. And so you're, exactly. you're not going to hear everything written out. Paul is not trying to write a biography of historical Jesus. And if he was exactly. in these letters, we'd say, okay, Paul, you did a horrible job, but he's not. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and if there wasn't that problem at the Corinthian church at the Lord's mm-hmm. table, we wouldn't even know that Paul's churches celebrated the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper, which, of course, they did. <laughs> so, I mean, if he didn't have that account in 1 Corinthians 11, there would be nothing about the Lord's Supper in any of Paul's letters. So that, that, that shows you that this argument from silence is really no argument at all. But of course, we, if there's another situation of strife, we should be thankful for the Corinthians had. It is that they yeah, had strife yeah. about the resurrection. God brought, God brought good out of the evil. <laughs> yeah. Why is it so helpful to us that the, Christ, that the Corinthians could not get matters straight on the resurrection? Yeah, so the, so and that's where we get the, the kind of the foundational um, source, bedrock source that I refer to in my book is in 1 Corinthians 15 because another issue that was happening in the Corinthian church is their – clearly believing weird things about, you know, the resurrection body. They're asking, what's the resurrection body like? Um, You know, have we missed the resurrection? They have all kinds of strange views. They're not completely uh, understanding what Paul had taught them about the the believer's future resurrection. And so Paul lays out really the, the longest chapter, really the heart of the letter, 58 verses we have in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's now answering these questions they have. And he really doesn't get to the actual questions that the Corinthians ask until uh, around somewhere in the, the late 30s in the verses, because he begins with the foundation of the believer's resurrection. So we can know that believers, followers of Jesus, will be bodily resurrected because Jesus was bodily resurrected. And how do we know Jesus was bodily resurrected? And that's when Paul quotes this creedal tradition, which was clearly for him and really for the all the early earliest apostles, kind of the evidence, kind of the statement of faith, really the, the original, the true apostles' creed that stated what they believed about Jesus's death, 
his burial, his resurrection, and all these different people and groups that Jesus appeared to. And so that's what we get in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. We get this early creedal tradition that dates somewhere between two to five years after Jesus' death and resurrection, maybe even earlier. And, and again, this is across the board. Nobody I couldn't find but maybe three scholars to even dispute this idea. So this is this is a 99, another one of those 99% proof, high bar, um, agreed upon facts, bedrock facts from from the, the the early church and from the New Testament that this creedal tradition was formulated within uh, months to at most maybe somewhere around five years uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Paul quotes that as kind of the, the launching pad to then discuss the resurrection, um, uh, the future bodily resurrection of all believers. But he begins with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And by doing that, again, we get really the, the I would say, the most powerful evidence for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in the New yeah, Testament. Dr. Bass, I've got a few commentaries here by one First Corinthians, and all of them would tell me that First Corinthians was written around 56 A.D., or so, maybe give or take one or two years, and yet you're telling me this portion in there, somehow though you just know comes about five years earlier or so, or five years after the resurrection. I mean, doesn't that seem a bit arbitrary? Yeah. Just pick out this one part and say, oh, this part's early. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, re- the reason why scholars are, are pretty much unanimous that this is the case is because Paul uses that language of, for what I delivered unto you, I received. And that language of delivered and received is this common language of transmission among the Jews. We even see it in the Mishnah, um, dating to around 200 AD. But but this, this is pretty much agreed upon to be this kind of language of transmission of tradition that Paul is referring to. And so if he delivered it to them, it would have been when he planted the church. So he's, he's obviously writing maybe sometime in the mid-50s AD, but he planted the church probably around 4950 AD, and so he would have then received it sometime earlier than that. So when did he receive it? That, that would be a discussion. But interestingly, there's really only two options that, that scholars debate when he actually received it. One is even earlier than when I think it was, which is it was right after Paul was converted and in, in, in on the Damascus Road. So it was with the earliest Christians that he associated with after he was converted on the Damascus Road. They gave him this tradition. So, so some scholars take that view. So that would date to within a year, for sure, of the, of the resurrection of Jesus. But the, the, I think the most likely place he received this is when he spent that time with Peter and James in Jerusalem sometime around 37 36, 38 AD, but he, he tells us in Galatians it was three years after his conversion. So we're talking at most five years after Jesus's death and resurrection. He met with Peter, he met with James, and so it makes sense when he says he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, he appeared to more than 500, he appeared to James. It would make sense that he received that type of information about these appearances when he met with Peter and James and probably others of the 12, and he probably met with some of those 500 who were still alive uh, as well. And so that, that's that's really the reason that we can get it back all the way to the, the mid-30s to earlier than that uh, AD. And again, that's when Paul received it, so you could even go earlier than that for when it was formulated. So James Dunn, as you mentioned before, uh, I quote him because he actually has the earliest uh, uh, theory, which is like within months. So we're talking about probably you know, sometime after the ascension of Jesus, sometime after the the, the Pentecostal experience, 
that's when the apostles started to go out and teach and train and plant churches. And when they did that, they probably formulated this agreed-upon creedal tradition to teach new converts in the faith, to have them memorize it, to have them know in the depths of their heart what they believe about Jesus and his death and resurrection. Isn't it interesting, really, when you think about that? We're so often today that we Christians are anti-reason or anti-evidence, and yet if this is true, whereas when the first things every early Christian was immediately trained upon, evidence. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I don't remember if you mentioned this in the book, but I also came to think of when uh, Gary Habermas debated James Crossley on Unbelievable. Habermas, a Christian, Crossley, the non-Christian. And they in Habermas goes over these facts, these minimal facts he has about Christianity. And just about he goes to Crossley and says, what do you think about those? you want to dispute them? He says, no, I concede all of them. I accept every single one of those. And independently mm-hmm. on yep. its own. That, that's, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the approach. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's, that's what I think we have to do with people like someone like Crossley, someone like Herman. Independently on his own. Crossley referred to 1 Corinthians 15 as a gold mind. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I didn't actually hear that. I need to go listen to that one. Okay. So it, what else in there, because I know that there's more to it than the, what, I pass, what I received I passed on to you. What else is in there that makes scholars certain it's a creed? Well, also, uh, if you look at it in the original language, you really have this kind of um, uh, symmetry with the, if you put it put it like below each other line by line, you see that it has kind of this memorizable uh, formula and format. And so, and so the, the after in the English, it says that, that's where you, the creed really begins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And, and then Christ was raised, and then he repeats it according to the scriptures, and then he appeared. And so what you have there is really this, the, this statement of, of history, which is that Christ died, and then you have like a theological point on that, which is he, he died for our sins, and you have the fact that it's being fulfilled in the Old Testament prophecies mm-hmm. according to the scriptures, and then really— the burial is, is kind of, I think, incidental. It's, it's really focused on just the fact that he died. So he died, and the proof, the historical proof, is he was buried. You know, you don't, you don't bury people that aren't dead. So he died, and so he was buried. And the same thing with the resurrection. So the resurrection also, according, according to the earliest composers of this creed, was the fulfillment of, of all the scriptures that had gone before. And the proof, what's the proof that he rose again? It's that he appeared to uh, to all these individuals and groups, mm. and I can and I can introduce him to you. I mean, the, it, it shows that in the mid 50s A.D., uh, eyewitness testimony of the risen Jesus was readily available. I mean, these people were probably traveling all over, just like Paul. We know we know Peter was traveling mm. from Jerusalem to Corinth because Corinth, Peter was actually uh, in Corinth previous to Paul, as as that's why he he became one of the celebrity preachers, kind of people that they started worshiping along with Apollos. Uh, and others. So, so we have this this clear proof that Paul, that Paul is appealing to, just like you said, from the earliest days, they would point to the evidence. There's no doubt the Holy Spirit were working on their hearts and doing doing incredible things and, and transforming their lives. And there were miracles definitely happening, as we see in the Book of Acts, and even Paul references in his letters uh, that he that he he did signs and wonders. 
as evidence of an apostle. But it was this this powerhouse proof of the eyewitnesses to to Jesus's resurrection that was being appealed to, and and that was readily available. Yeah, sometimes people will say, "Well, these people are, and we're going to get more to the appearances later on. These people weren't really named. How could they be found?" I, I as I was saying, the closest explanation I could think of is hearing people who grew up in the 50s or 60s and they were out playing around and they got in trouble. By the time they got home, their parents already knew about it because nothing was private at all. Everything was done publicly. In the ancient world, everything was just as much public as well. If you were someone who would have been seen as someone who claimed to see the resurrected Jesus, you would be known about. So some investigator could come to a town in Israel and say, hey, I'm looking for someone who says they saw Jesus resurrected. Okay, you just go down to this house here, that, that guy, that crazy one there. Yeah, he's the one who says it. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's exactly what Paul's saying when he adds, as, as scholars agree, he's adding to the creed on that 500 statement when he says some of them, I mean, he actually says many of them are still alive, though some of them have fallen asleep. So, so by the mid-50s AD, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, mm -hmm. a number of those 500, how many? Maybe 100 of them, maybe 150 of them, but a, but a certain portion of them have died, have fallen asleep since the, the, the 30s AD. It's been about 20, 20 years since that they, they, they saw the risen Jesus. But many of them, the majority, are actually still alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he appeals to that because saying, you Corinthians, you can actually go take a take a holiday and go to Jerusalem and you can talk to them. You can mm -hmm. hear what it was like to see the risen Jesus himself. And and they're they're still traveling around. I'm sure they heard Peter's testimony, but they could hear it from so James, they can hear it from Paul himself, and they can hear it from those of the five hundred. They don't even have to travel themselves. They can just say Hey, let's pick out a few representatives and send them out there and do the investigation for us. That, that's that's right. And travel wasn't unheard of in that world. No, no, yeah. I mean, we we have good evidence that they were traveling. I mean, just like I said, I mean, we know Peter, we know Apollos, we know a lot of them are are traveling all over, mm -hmm. not just from Acts, but just Paul's letters. We see we see those those movements that are happening with the the earliest followers. Luke, Mark, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing them all over the place. Okay, we can get more to the appearances later on here, but let, let's start with the beginning that Jesus died. Now, this is, as we know from elsewhere on Paul, definitely, this is by crucifixion. I mean, this is one of the biggest facts stressed throughout the New Testament over and over. Jesus was crucified. So let's, let's go into that some. What exactly was crucifixion? Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned John Dominic Crossan, mm -hmm. and... Uh, I quote him in the book because I, I, I love the way he says it. He says that Jesus was crucified is as certain as anything historical can be. I mean, that's that's a, that's an excellent way to say it, um, and 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 that, that's exactly right. We know this is this is a Archimedean point in history, like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, like uh, the temple being destroyed in AD seventy. Jesus was crucified in those early those early thirties. Um, AD, either 30 or 33, scholars do debate the exact year, but but it was one of those one of those two uh, during Passover. But 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 crucifixion, as I mentioned before, Johannin, uh, the man that we, uh, a Jewish man that that we found his bones. Uh, I talk about like I, like I found it. No, uh, archaeologists found his bones um, 
1968 in that in that ossuary, and it also had the nails in it, and and the nail still through one of his ankle bones. Interestingly, he was crucified different way than the Gospels say Jesus was crucified. So he was crucified with his arms wrapped uh, like a wrapping around um, probably some sort of cloth that wrapped or, that tied his arms uh, uh, to the to the to the cross, but his his uh, feet were put on the side of the of the wooden of the wooden um, stake and the nails would have been driven right through his ankle bone on both sides into the into the wood and so that's how he was fastened to directly on the cross but Jesus we know at least according to the gospels it is it said he was uh, nailed in his hands and his feet which would probably have been his wrists uh, the hand would have included the wrist and and, um, and then through his feet. He could have been, though, uh, instead of the normal way we see it, where his feet are are um, are over each other and the nail goes through there, it could have been like Johannan, where his feet were nailed from the side. We, we don't know that for sure. But nails were used, though, in his hands and his feet, um, uh, according to the Gospels. And so after he was flogged, which usually many times would have already killed somebody, um, and the flogging would have been the, when we're talking about a Roman flogging, as opposed to say the beatings and the whippings that Paul received in the in the Jewish synagogues. That would have been still terrible, but that wouldn't have been life threatening. Uh, the floggings were life threatening because we're talking about just as many have seen the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. He did an excellent job demonstrating the horror of that because it would have had animal bones and glass and all kinds of things in those leather leather shards and. And uh, and the, the the flesh on the back would have probably been ripped off uh, again and again. And so he was already draining blood. And that's probably why Simon of Cyrene had to help him carry the cross uh, the rest of the way. Jesus, Jesus couldn't make it all the way holding the cross himself. So Simon of Cyrene helped him carry it. But then he would have been probably lifted up and, and nailed uh, directly uh, into uh, the cross with his with his wrists and then his his. Uh, through his ankle bones, and ultimately he would have hung there, and you just have to kind of lift yourself up to breathe. And every time you do that, you know your your wherever the nail is on bone is getting more and more locked in. And eventually, when a person can't lift themselves up anymore, they would just suffocate. And and uh, asphyxiation is is the kind of the medical term that people would uh, people refer to as what happen as the the blood and the and the and the water would fill their lungs, and they would ultimately suffocate to death. Um, and this is why the Romans would break the knees of the of the crucified victim, because then they would they would die a lot faster. And we're told that that's what they did before Passover, so they could take him down from the cross before Passover. But with Jesus, he was already dead. Um, so kind of I think a way to say that he dies just he dies when he wants to, and he rises when he wants to. But um, but yeah, so so the horror of crucifixion. We know we know too much about it, um, and I would recommend a great book by uh, Martin Hengel, the German scholar, called "Crucifixion in the Ancient World." It's a small little book, but it's just packed full of everything you could ever want to know about about ancient crucifixion. Very difficult title to remember, isn't it? Yes. Now, something else about crucifixion that we can miss out on is that when we look at something like, say, the Passion of the Christ, we look and say, "Gosh, that must have been painful." And yeah, it was, but it wasn't just designed to cure and cure painfully. It was designed to cure shamefully. 
Jesus would yes. be, was killed in a way to make an object out of him to everyone else. Yes, it was a it was a, it was a clear deterrent. I mean that that's why the Romans did it. You know, the the Persians probably invented it, and the Greeks used it. Alexander the Great used it, uh, and others of the Greeks used it. But but it was the Romans who perfected it. They they learned how to do it. They learned how to do it well. They would do it publicly. So Jesus was was crucified. You know, on the side of the road, not on some hill far away. He was actually crucified probably, uh, maybe it was like kind of a, a elevated place, but it would have been on the side of the road. That's why it even says in the Gospels, as people pass by, they mocked him and they would say, you who are uh, claimed to be the son of God, come down now. So they, they, would, they were passing by probably on their way into Jerusalem. Um, and so it was always a public thing because it was, it was clearly meant to be a deterrent. You, you fight against Rome, you mess with us, we will crucify you and, and put you. And, 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 and on that point, it was even worse. When we talk about shame, it was even worse than Passion of the Christ, the way Mel Gibson put it. He couldn't even make it as bad as he could because you had the little cloth over Jesus and he would have been completely in the nude. Mm-hmm. Um, they, when they were crucified, they had no clothing at all. Mm-hmm. Everything was designed to be shameful and the main message received was don't be like this man and yes this also means that if someone became a christian early on they were saying i do want to be like this man and so if a roman citizen saw that or someone who is a gentile of a roman empire they'd say hmm traitor to caesar got it if a Jewish person saw say, hmm, blasphemer to Yahweh, got it. Mm. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Okay. So let's look also then at the barrier of Jesus. And this is one that is disputed by even some notable scholars. I think many of us were surprised when Bart Ehrman came out in his book of How Jesus Became God and said he didn't believe in the barrier of Jesus anymore. But does he have a good case? Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, I was, I was shocked by that too. It, it, it's almost like, I think, because of what N.T. Wright argues really, you know, so, so powerfully in the resurrection of the Son of God, you know, his big kind of two bedrock facts for him that he wants to demonstrate is the empty tomb, the burial of Jesus, but the empty tomb, and then the appearances. And so he says, when you get the empty tomb and you get the appearances together, you have just this powerhouse case that says is as, as historically certain as, and he even uses like the, the temple being destroyed in AD 70 and Caesar crossing the Rubicon. Um, I, I, I think he's right. I think, I think, you know, if you can demonstrate and show, and, and I do think the empty tomb is, is strongly strong evidence that it's historical, but again, I don't focus on it that much, the, the burial in the empty tomb, because of the fact that, that not just Ehrman, but, but so many still dispute it because it is a primary uh, story from the Gospels. Uh, but I think that the evidence is strong. We have it multiply attested in all four Gospels, uh, even in, in the sermons and acts, which, which, which many would argue are, are even earlier traditions that go back uh, way, way earlier than, than the book of Acts was written. And so you have the, the statement in uh, Acts 13 that, that they took him down from the cross and buried his tomb. And so, you know, you, you have you have uh, and, and you have this uh, statement of the fact that he was buried in the past tense in this earliest creed. And so clearly Jesus was given some kind of proper burial. I mean, I think bare minimum, you, you would have to agree to that if you trust these sources at all. Uh, so I think something's going on there when somebody wants to outright deny 
uh, Jesus having a proper burial. I, th- I think it may be because they realize how strong the bur- burial, empty tomb, and appearances really is when it comes to evidence for the resurrection and the truth of Christianity. would agree on this or not, but when you talk about a proper barrier, I, I think you just mean barrier in a tomb meant for barrier, because I, I would also contend that Jesus' barrier, like his crucifixion, was really a shameful barrier. Like he could have been given a mm. proper barrier, but it was a dishonorable barrier. For instance, he wasn't buried in his family's tomb, and people weren't allowed to go to the tomb and mourn apparently, for him. So... No, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. No, what I meant by proper yeah. burial is as opposed to like what John Dominic Crossan says, you know, that he was just thrown to the dogs or that he might have been just thrown in some ditch somewhere, which which definitely did happen to crucified mm-hmm. victims. We, we know that, that some crucified victims would just be thrown into a ditch or something like that. So a proper burial as opposed to that would be buried in any way in, in like a tomb or some way where, where the family and, and the friends were were uh, a part of that. Yeah, but Dr. Bass, don't you know that the Romans were in charge and the Romans did not allow crucified people to be buried? That was one of their policies there. So why on earth should we think that Jesus would be an exception? Yeah, I quote in uh, in the book, the, the evidence from Philo of Alexandria and from Josephus that talk about how, uh, especially with Jews and even during high holy days, they would get that permission. And so so both of them independently testify that, that people were, um, specifically Jews who were crucified, there were instances where they were given proper burial, usually by their, their, their family or friends. They would, the Romans would allow them to take them and, and bury them. And that, that probably is what happened with Yohanan, the fact that we have found him, him his bones in, a, in an ossuary in Jerusalem. The fact that we discovered that with the nails, you know, still in his, bo- in, in his bone, in his ankle bone. I, th- I think that's evidence that, you know, that's physical evidence that it actually happened, but we have written evidence that it happened too. So I think in every way, what, what the Gospels, all four Gospels tell us, Joseph of Arimathea was this kind of secret disciple of Jesus. He was a part of the the, the 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 council that condemned Jesus, but he was secretly a follower of Jesus, and ultimately he, after Jesus died, he he went boldly. It's, it even says uh, to to Pilate, and and um, you know he probably had some influence there, and he was able to uh, to obtain the body himself. And and it does sound like he probably let the women uh, come come to the come to his tomb and 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 anoint the body and things like that. 
Yeah, what you have to keep in mind is that across the Roman Empire, generally that happened, that crucified people wouldn't be buried, but Israel, in peacetime, they were usually allowed to practice their religion, the Empire conceded these things, and burial was supposed to happen in Deuteronomic law because of the purity of the land. It didn't have to do with a person who was crucified, it had to do with preventing a dead body from polluting the land somehow. Yeah, and I do think that's the that's why the Romans do it. I think they were just trying to keep peace. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think they they just as we see with Pilate with uh, with the with the whole giving in to Jesus being cru- you know handing him over to be crucified. Ultimately, the Roman leaders just want peace with the Jews. They don't want any more riots and any more problems that we know they had many many mm-hmm. issues with Jews yeah. from Josephus and and other evidence and Philo. Yeah, of course, like when things like the Jewish war start where they conquer Jerusalem, all of that goes out the window and they say, forget it, we're going to crucify all of you and no, you're exactly. not exactly. Yeah, there's no 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 peace time after after that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the Jewish war is the end of that. I like to remind everyone at this point you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We've got Justin Bass here, Dr. Justin Bass, talking about his book, The Bedrock of Christianity. But if you're here next week, where, good grief, we are going to go into something very different but very interesting on the show. We are going to be talking about Christianity and Charlie Brown, Peanuts. Stephen Lind is going to be my guest. He's going to be talking about his book, A Charlie Brown Religion, where we're going to discuss... Manners related to Charles Shorts. Did he die a humanist, for example? And how did Christianity fit into his uh, his comic strip? All those are going to be discussed. So if you're a fan of a strip, like I am, then come here next week. Next week and see uh, and enjoy the, the dialogue that we have. <laughs> so, um, Doctor Bass, let's get back into the book here. Now, if we're going with some uh, sort of a minimal facts. We have to be honest also that the empty tomb is not really one of those minimal facts. I mean, a lot of scholars agree to it, such as Gaze of Ramesh and others who, who aren't Christians. But you do have a little bit in there about the empty tomb. What do you make the case of the empty tomb reliable? Yeah, I think that, that that's an important point. You know, I do spend a lot of time with it, but it's not a bedrock fact, just, just meaning it doesn't pass that you know, 99% high bar of agreed upon uh, facts by all the, the, the scholars across the board. So that that's all that means. That doesn't mean it's not historical. That doesn't mean we don't have excellent evidence for it, which I think we do. It just it just means that it's not the um, one of the things that, that, like the crucifixion, that everyone agrees on. And in fact, I think it, it's an important point that when you read the Gospels themselves and you read Acts, you find that even though the empty tomb is uh, narrated, we get the story of the empty tomb, it's not the empty tomb that convinces really anyone of the truth of the resurrection. I mean, we have this this one interesting uh, statement in John when John, Peter raced the tomb, and you know, John beats him. He, he tells, tells us that three times that he beats him in the race. But as he, as he wins that race against Peter and goes into the tomb, he tells us that he believed, that, that John believed. But what did he actually believe? I don't know. What, what exactly that meant. But everyone else, it's the appearances that convinces them mm. that Jesus has risen from the dead. The empty tomb leads to puzzlement. It leads to questions. It leads to wonder. 
It leads to to doubts. They don't they don't really know why the tomb is empty. And even in the sermons and acts, the when they proclaim the the evidence for the resurrection, they don't proclaim the empty tomb. They proclaim really the appearances. They say he appeared to us in Jerusalem and in Galilee. You know that they really put point to the appearances as the as the proof. And we see that in First Corinthians fifteen as well. Paul mentions the burial, but ultimately for him, the the evidence, the strong powerhouse evidence of the resurrection is the is the uh, the appearances. We can think of the two disciples of old Emmaus. Right? They, they're walking in cell together, even though they've heard the tomb is empty. And I, exactly. I don't remember if somebody even said that they've heard they've, that he's been seen alive again. It's not until they see that the person with him is Jesus. But then they say, oh, he very is alive again. And this and this really rings true. I mean, I think for for really us today or at any point in history, I mean, the fact that, like Luke says at the beginning of Acts, that Jesus appeared to them, giving them many convincing proofs. It's one Greek word in in the original, and and it's it's a word that just means like like unalterable evidence, you know, convincing proofs. Mm-hmm. Jesus had to do that because they saw him crucified, and I think they were absolutely convinced that he was now a false messiah. He was not who he claimed to be. And the Christian movement's over. So for Jesus to actually convince them, he had to do far more than just have have a tomb empty. I mean, he had to actually come to them. He had to have them touch him in, in the in the places where where the nail marks were. He had to do it again and again and again. I mean, he had to do a lot to convince those men. That and, and the women may have believed right away. I don't know, but the men for sure. They even thought the women's testimony that Jesus rose from the dead was crazy. And they, the Greek word there is where we get the word delirious. In Luke, when it says that the women uh, proclaimed um, the resurrection of Jesus to the apostles, the first response from them was that the women are liros, which is where we get delirious. It's it's they're crazy, they're insane, they're out of their minds. I mean, this was the original understanding of the res- resurrection from the apostles. So it took Jesus appearing to them, speaking with them, eating with them, drinking with them again and again to really convince them. And that's why you know once he did that after those forty days. You know, that's why these, you know, as, as far as we know from, from the ones we have evidence for, we know they went to their deaths believing this. We know that they went across the Roman Empire for the next 30, 40 years proclaiming this truth because he made it very, very clear, crystal clear that he had risen again from the dead. It, it's so amusing when science, when atheists today say, well, you know, we live in an age of science today and we know better than people back then and we know that dead people are stay dead. And I think, you know... We are more scientifically adept than they were, but they also knew dead people stay dead. Exactly. Yeah, that, in that, there's a great quote from N.T. Wright in The Resurrection of the Son of God that basically says that. He said, proposing that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead was, was just as controversial 1,900 years ago as it is today. The discovery that dead people stay dead was not first made by the philosophers of the Enlightenment. I think that's it. And, and, and also, C.S. Lewis, you, I know you've read in the miracles, you know, he brings up the, the, the parallel with Joseph, you know, that Joseph knew where babies came from. Yeah. I mean, that's that's why it took the angel. It took an angel from God appearing to Joseph to convince him that the baby in Mary's belly was the son of God, was, you know, that 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 this was this was real. Which we do affirm. That this was from God, which we do yes. affirm. Yes. Oh. Uh, that still doesn't give us, though, the case entirely. Why should we believe the tomb was found empty? 
Well, I, I, my reason would be that one, it's it's attested in all four gospels, and I and I just I would go back a little bit and just say, we know that Matthew wrote Matthew. I think we know that John wrote John. I think I think we have good evidence that uh, Peter, for example, is behind the Gospel of Mark. So I think Peter is is kind of the eyewitness that we find throughout Mark. So so I put a lot of weight in the early church testimony because I think the early church were greatly vested in this, just like just like the Jews were very, uh, very much vested in their uh, the evidence for the Holocaust and, and wanting to 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 relay that information for future generations so this that horror would never happen again. The early Christians equally wanted to make sure that what they were laying out, what they were, what ended up becoming the New Testament, but these books, whether they were gospels or letters, they wanted to make sure they were accurate. They were written by who they claimed to be written by. And so when first Peter's claimed to be written by Peter, you know, they wanted to make sure, did Peter actually write that? So the early church really vetted these books strongly. And we, and we see that when you study the evidence that they, they, uh, would reject, um, there, there are many books that they did reject because they, like the Apocalypse Peter, they said, no, that was not written by Peter. And third Corinthians was another one. They said, no, that was not written by Paul. And so, and so I think that they got it right when they said that, you know, Mark, um, the gospel of Mark is, was written by Mark, but he was a disciple of Peter and he was basically writing down Peter's sermon notes in a way he was writing down what Peter, uh, was giving him. And, and, and when you read Mark that way from that vantage point, it's incredible. We're, you're basically reading the eyewitness testimony of Peter himself, because if you notice, he's, he's mentioned at the very beginning and he's also mentioned at the very, very end, uh, when he, when he's singled out, when it says, go and tell the disciples he's and he's going to appear to them in Galilee and tell Peter. And so, and then, and then very beginning of Mark, Peter's one of the first, he's the first to be uh, called when, when uh, he, he's, he sees him on the beach and he says, follow me. And so from there all on until Peter uh, denies Christ and weeps and, ru- and runs away, you have um, that powerhouse evidence that, that um, you have the eyewitness evidence that, that uh, you're getting in all those accounts because Peter's there for all of it. And also uh, when you look at Luke, which, which mentions how Peter even uh, ran to the tomb and saw it empty. Again, Luke, I think Paul is associated with Luke, and we have all the evidence for that with uh, Luke being an, uh, a, a traveling companion with Paul, uh, not just the early church, but also the, the wee passages we get in the book of Acts that, that um, whoever wrote Acts would have been with uh, Paul on these certain journeys. He says, we went there, we did this, and then later he says, they did this, and so he j- joins them and he leaves them and, and then he joins back. So so I think we just have really – I would want to demonstrate how we have real good reasons to think that we, we have eyewitness testimony at the source of the gospel accounts, which all testify to the empty tomb. Yeah, one of the things I'd say also that is that if the tomb still had a body in it for some reason, that uh, there wouldn't have been Christianity to begin with. That's right, yeah. No, that's exactly right. I think that the crossing response would just be though that that the body disappeared already because it was just eaten by dogs or something. Mm. So I think so I think we have to first demonstrate that that he was buried in, a, in an actual tomb, and then we we then you do have exactly what you're saying. You had you know it's inevitable that it had to have been empty because if there was any body, then Christianity would have ended you know before it started. <laughs> well, how come also Paul nowhere mentions? the empty tomb. He just says buried and raised, but he doesn't say anything about an empty tomb. Yeah, I mean, I think it's for the reason I gave before. I, I really think it's because 
for Paul and for the earliest apostles, the empty tomb wasn't a evidence in a way. You know, it wasn't something that they were proclaiming as the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, I think they were they were proclaiming mainly the appearances. And so the empty tomb was just kind of incidental. Of course, it was empty. It was obvious. You know, it was just kind of an assumed thing. But the but the appearances were were actual proof. I think that Paul and the uh, and the earliest apostles were giving for the resurrection. Okay, but let's then get into this idea of resurrection because, you know, we could say that where well, if he if someone's in a tomb and their body's raised, where well, of course then the tomb is empty. But maybe the body wasn't raised because you know Paul says that. Jesus became a life-giving spirit that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God and that he he was a spiritual man of the resurrection. So so maybe Jesus didn't rise bodily from the dead. Yeah, this is where, you know, N.T. Wright does an excellent job that this is about the first 200 pages of his 740-something page book on the resurrection of the Son of God. And, and that's where he really demonstrates that, that the, this language is very specific. So the language, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, this language of anastasis, this, this word that means resurrection. It means bodily resurrection. This is a word that the Jews uh, very, very well knew and believed, that, and they believed that this would happen at the end of the world, that this would be what would happen to the righteous and the wicked at the, at the end of all things before the kingdom of God came, uh, the, 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 the dead would rise the righteous uh, shine like the stars and the wicked to, to everlasting shame and contempt. But it was bodily resurrection. It goes back to Daniel 12, uh, I think even other passages. But, but Daniel 12 is one that was, was is certainly talking about uh, bodily resurrection. Many who sleep in the dust will rise. And so Jews believed this. Jews proclaimed this. And then the Greeks and the Romans and others, they definitely knew about this too, but they rejected it. And so they would say, no, there's not going to be any type of physical resurrection. Uh, they believed in like tra- transmigration of souls, or they believed just the immortality of the soul, like Plato did. Uh, but they did not believe in a bodily type resurrection. So when Paul uses that language of resurrection, especially as a Jewish Pharisee, he is talking about bodily resurrection. So, so any place Jesus would have buried, it would have been empty um, when he rose. So, so I think when he and we talks about him being having a spiritual body. Um, again, the the commentators do an excellent job showing how what he's basically saying is is that. The resurrection body, in the same way our mortal body right now is more dominated by flesh, and the spirit we have the spirit, but it's but it's not the dominant uh, aspect of our of our existence. When we when we are in our resurrection body, when we are raised, the spiritual side is going to be what dominates. It's going to be a spiritual body. So we are going to be dominated and filled and and completely controlled by the spirit. And I think that's that's what Paul's saying. In First Corinthians 15, when when he when he says a spiritual body, but but just the language of, of resurrection, physical resurrection, again and again, in Paul's earliest letters and elsewhere, is is the language of bodily resurrection, physical. Yeah, I always like to point to Gundry's work, uh, Soma in Biblical Greek, and I was wanting a brief summation of Wright's work on the nature of a body. Uh, Mike Lacona does that where in his book on the resurrection of Jesus. That's right. So, let's talk talking then about the resurrection of Jesus. First off, the appearances. Well, let's look at this list here. Something odd about women aren't mentioned in the list. Now, doesn't that seem odd? Doesn't that seem to go against the gospel since the gospel is mentioned women? This creed, it doesn't mention women. I mean, one of them got it wrong then, didn't they? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I actually personally just think it, it is a sad thing. It's kind of a, it's kind of a slight, you know. I, I think it's for for apologetic reasons. I think it's the same reason the empty tomb is not mentioned. So I, I think because we have evidence from Josephus and other places, even Celsus, we talked, we mentioned Celsus before. Um, it's it's clear that in the ancient world, women's testimony was not accepted in a court of law and was not, especially you know, in a Jewish mindset. Women's testimony would not have been accepted. It's ridiculous, you know, that that you know, women, women's testimony is just as good as, as men's testimony. But in the ancient world, it was not considered that. And so, even though women, Mary Magdalene for sure, and other and those some of those other women, Joanna and Susanna and others, were the first to see Jesus, they're not mentioned in the creedal tradition. Which, as again, I, I think it's, it's it's it was put together by the apostles as kind of an apologetic in a way, but also a way to teach. The, the newest believers, uh, the bedrock of their faith. And so that's why I think they begin with Peter, because they want to begin with the, the, uh, what they would consider the, the most powerful evidence that Jesus rose. And we see this again in the uh, sermons in Acts as well, because in, in Acts, when they proclaim the resurrection, they also don't mention the women first. They mention the male disciples who, who, um, who Jesus appeared to. And, and yet, uh, the person who wrote Acts, which I believe was Luke, also wrote Luke, and in Luke we see that it was the women who saw Jesus first. So when they actually tell the story, when they recount the story in the narrative, they, they have to tell you know they're going to tell the truth because yeah. that's just how it happened. Women were the first to see Jesus, but when they give kind of an apologetic type statement, whether it's the creedal tradition or the sermons of Acts, that then they they mention the uh, only they only mention the men. Um, as as uh, the solid eyewitness testimony that would have been trusted at that time, but it is a slight, I think. Thankfully, we have the gospel, so I think that that helps it a little bit because all four gospels testify that Mary Magdalene was the first. Yeah, but Doctor Bass, don't you know that it's not uncommon even today that after someone dies, they're seen again by their loved ones. I mean, I had an aunt who died back in September. She was in her nineties, and her husband had died earlier. And she would see him several times after he had died. So this kind of thing happens all the time. And, you know, why shouldn't we think the disciples were having the same kind of thing? For my aunt, it was a hallucination. Surely the disciples had yeah. hallucinations too. Yeah, this, and this, this is what I find, I find to be really the, the only explanation even put forward uh, by by scholars, scholars like Bart Ehrman before and, and others who, who are trying to explain how do you deal with these appearances? Because again, a bedrock fact is that they, you know, people like Paul, and James and, and Peter and even Mary Magdalene and the 12, they definitely believed Jesus appeared to them. They were convinced that that man that, that was crucified appeared to them. So how do you explain those appearances? And really the, the only answer that I find other than just them saying, I don't know, uh, Kind of a cautious, cautious agnostic approach, which which I do respect, um, is hallucinations. Hallucinations is really the only kind of positive uh, answer that that's given uh, to try to explain away the appearances. Now, now uh, I talk about in my book the, um, the 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 survey that's done by uh, New Testament scholar Dale Allison in his book Resurrecting Jesus is just uh, an excellent discussion of exactly what you're talking about these bereavement type uh, appearances where people, you know, which is very common where people see, believe that they see a dead loved one like grandma or, or an aunt or, or whoever, 
has died, they have some sort of dream or they have some sort of vision or they, they, they really feel like they were, they were present with them. This is, this is very common across cultures and across history. But what Dale Allison really shows is, is that in the, in the case of Jesus, a number of things happen that are not found really anywhere in the literature. And if, it, if they are found, it's, it's very, very rare. And one is that, that uh, rarely did he find ever that multiple individuals and groups over an extended period of time would see that same apparition or hallucination. Another thing is the, the groups that, that he found in the literature were never more than eight people. So if the if the count of the five hundred is 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 historical, uh, that that is unprecedented in the literature. Also, the hallucinations uh, never claim that a dead person uh, that appeared to them is their enemy. So they, they they wouldn't project. You don't find people projecting um, their their enemy in their hallucinations, as Paul projected. <laughs> if they if they want to say it's hallucination, then Paul somehow imagined somehow projected. His enemy, this man who he believed was accursed, who was a false prophet, appeared to him on the Damascus Road. It's just, it's just too incredible to even think that. And then also, um, they don't, they don't see uh, the, their hallucinations or their apparitions as someone rising from the dead. So this language of resurrection again is, 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 is front and center with the early Christians, and you have to explain why. Why did they use the language of resurrection? They, they knew about ghosts and appearances. They knew about even martyrs going to heaven, like the Maccabean martyrs or um, Elijah and, and Enoch and, and, and many other accounts. They could have used that kind of language with Jesus, but they didn't. They said he rose from the dead. They said that resurrection that Daniel was prophesying that would happen at the end of, end of the world happened with Jesus. And so so what happened with the with the resurrection appearances of Jesus is unlike anything we find in the in the literature on resur- on uh, bereavement type apparitions. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. I'm, I'd like to give you some pushback on Paul a little bit, but I'd like to remind everyone of us when you're listening to a Deeper Waters podcast, everything we do is supported by listeners like you. And I really want to encourage you, Matt, you know, if you're benefiting from bits, this work, it's really fitting for you to go and take part in the harvesting of it by supporting us. And financially, is a great way that you can do that. Go to my website, deeperwatersprojects.com. There's a link on the site. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Ministries. Now, you click the sublink in there, and you get taken to the ministry of risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place, which are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, and then you get in touch with me, or Mike, or Debbie, or my wife, Allie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also uh, purchase an ebook that I have written. Definitely out right now is um, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. Hopefully, out by then is a book that's tenly titled at this point Dawkins and the Dock, a response to Richard Dawkins's Outgrowing God that I wrote. And there's also books I've co-written. The Mention of Bars Project, 
um, groundness a look at Ann Barker's work. Christian answers this generation's questions, God and natural disasters, and two books on inerrancy, defining inerrancy, and contextualizing inerrancy. And if you can't support us financially, you can support us by word of mouth. Tell other people you know about the show and drop us a pause review on iTunes. I really love to see them. Now, Dr. Bass, do you have an organization or a charity that you see people donate to? You know, uh, you know, I'll encourage them to keep supporting you because, uh, you know, you're doing great work. And so, yeah, I'd want them to support just, you know, great work going out, apologetics, you know, different, different organizations. Uh, I don't have anything specific right now. Um, if they wanted to email me, justinwbass at yahoo.com, uh, I can point them towards, uh, for example, the ministry that we are doing and, and working with refugees in, uh, in uh, Amman, Jordan. So that's where we've been the last three years. And so uh, and especially during this time of, of uh, the plague of uh, COVID, uh, refugees are really suffering right now. And so if they wanted to make a donation to help Syrian, Iraqi and Yemeni refugees uh, through an NGO that we that we serve uh, in uh, Jordan, they can do that. Um, so that 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 would definitely be. Uh, welcome, but but I don't have anything specifically to donate to uh, uh, for the for, for the specific work that I'm doing with apologetics, other than just go buy tons of copies of them. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to how you were talking about the Apostle Paul here, and I want to get some pushback because you said that you know Paul wouldn't have seen his enemy. Well, you know that seems awfully short sighted. You know, Paul had been persecuting the Christians and. Isn't it quite likely that he was struggling with a guilty conscience at that point and seeing how the Christians behaved and being convicted of his sins? Isn't it possible you know, he could have just had a hallucination that made him convinced that he was wrong because he was fearing all the guilt that he was going through? Yeah, I mean that that's a that's an interesting theory people have put forward. But but again, if you, if you trust, which again all the scholars do trust that Paul is is relaying the truth about his historical background in those early letters, Paul doesn't give any indication of that kind of mindset. He gives the indication of a Pharisee who was righteous in regards to the law, who was blameless, who was in every way convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was a false prophet and that he had to do all he could to destroy this movement. And so it gives you the impression that he was convinced to the moment that Jesus appeared to him, he was convinced that this was a false religion and this was a religion leading Israel astray. And just like Deuteronomy 13 says, he needed to uh, take up stones and stone these people. He needed to, to, to rid them from this, this cancer. He needed to rid it from from Israel before they they all were led astray to follow this this cursed crucified Nazarene, and so so yeah. So if you trust Paul's own statements about his mindset, which which as far as I can tell, all the scholars do that he, he's not he's not trying to to make things up or, or or give any any type of impression that he's that he's lying there. He is uh, telling the truth, and he is saying uh, that his in his mindset he was absolutely convinced. That Jesus was the opposite of what he came to be convinced he he is as the Son of God when Jesus appeared. Yeah, but couldn't he have also been you know wanting to be in a position of power and leadership in a new movement and saw this as his way up? Well, if he if he did have that motive, it seems like he would have given up pretty quick because we also know from like Second Corinthians eleven 
that he went through hell, <laughs> not literal hell, but but uh, horrific circumstances throughout the the uh, his missionary journeys. So we know he was lost at sea many times. He was shipwrecked. We know he was beaten times out number. We know he was even stoned at one point. Uh, we know he was uh, uh, whipped in the synagogues. We know he was uh, just suffering all the time for the name of Jesus. And so if, if this was some privileged position, uh, I don't know if Paul ever got to experience that because we also know he was beheaded in the end under Nero as a Christian. Yeah, I, I know it sounds bizarre, but these are sometimes actually actual objections I get from people online. I just think, oh my gosh, yeah. I can't believe you really think this. But, yeah, no, they, they need to read 2 Corinthians 11. I mean, it's an incredible, it's an incredible little autobiography there. Of Paul's sufferings, and he could have he could have quit that any time. All those sufferings that he experienced was only because he was proclaiming this crucified and as Lord of the world. He yeah, didn't have to do that. He could have quit any time. And for someone who's wanting more evidence on his on the death of Paul, I did interview Sean McDowell on his book, The Fate of the Apostles, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the leading book out there on this topic of how the apostles, or if the apostles even died. For their testimony, so that's right. And and then and he and he nails the 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 three that that we have the strongest evidence for, which is Paul, mm-hmm. Peter, and James. So let's uh, now we get to the appearance of the five hundred. And something very interesting, a lot of people is this appearance is nowhere cited in the Gospels. I mean, don't you think the Gospels would have wanted to point out something with five hundred people seeing Jesus at once? Yeah, I, I think it is. We don't know for sure, but uh, really going back to some of the early church fathers, they made this a parallel early on. But uh, I, I do think that the the account in Matthew 28, where Jesus uh, goes up on a mountain, the resurrected Jesus goes up on a mountain, and he's in Galilee, and, and it even says that, it says his disciples were there, his 12, but, uh, minus Judas, but it also says that some that were there were, were, were doubting. And so it gives the impression of a larger group and it, it just makes sense if the word began to spread throughout Galilee that, you know, hey, Jesus is going to appear at this place. It makes sense that maybe you would get, you know, a crowd of hundreds, maybe more than 500 at that spot. And so, so a lot of people parallel the Matthew 28 account with the, with the 500. But again, the, the, even if that's not, the, the, again, this argument from silence, I think, is, is, is very weak. We see all throughout the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, that they knew of so many incredible things about Jesus and stories that they just couldn't fit in their Gospels. I mean, they just had this embarrassment of riches. And so many times they knew of things, like, for example, Luke clearly had Mark's Gospel when he wrote, and so he knew about Jesus walking on water, but he doesn't put that in his Gospel. And so we we would say that same thing about that. We'd say, how could Luke know that Jesus walked on water and not put that in his Gospel? But for whatever reason, Luke just couldn't fit that in to his large gospel. So, so um, and, and even to parallel the Second Corinthians 11 as well, we know that Paul had all those experiences, like three shipwrecks, uh, before he even went to Rome. So those are three shipwrecks that aren't even mentioned in the book of Acts. So again, Luke has all this information about Paul that we know happened to him because of Paul's own autobiography in Second Corinthians 11. So Luke is, is really giving us just a taste of all the incredible, heroic, Herculean, you know, journeys uh, that, that Paul, that Paul uh, endeavored on. So 
So I think, there are, again, this just is, is an argument from silence, which I, I don't think is a, a strong yeah, argument. Yeah, but how do we even know what they saw exactly? I mean, we don't, all we see is that they, because we saw Jesus, we don't know where they saw him or what time of day it was, what exactly they saw. I mean, we just, maybe we just saw someone from a distance and thought it was Jesus. How can we know? Well, again, this is that convincing proofs. And so it's it's clear to me that when Paul says many are still alive, I mean, and he mentions this this statement, this, this appearance, it sounds like Paul talked to these people. Paul interviewed these eyewitnesses. So I think Paul is giving us his own uh, uh, investigation in Jerusalem when he probably met with Peter, James, probably others of the 12, and probably a lot of these people who were of this 500 who said, yeah, we all saw him at once. It was one appearance, and uh, we were all there, and we and we, uh, and we saw him. And, and some of us, and, and if, if, you, if you go along with Matthew's account, it probably makes sense that some of the 500 did doubt. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really honest statement, actually, from the New Testament that is saying, you know, hey, a lot of people who saw Jesus from afar did doubt. They were like, oh, that can't be the same guy that was crucified. I don't, I don't know about that. But many, many others were absolutely convinced, and they're the, probably the ones that Paul Paul met with and talked with. You know, Dr. Bass, and here, here's where you're getting contradictory, though. See, you have about 12 people the apostles, and say, of course, it wasn't 12 because Judas had died, but you have these who claim to see the risen Jesus, and you believe that, but we have 11 witnesses of the golden plates of Joseph Smith, and you don't believe that one. Aren't you picking and choosing? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think the, the, just the fact that some some of those eleven witnesses actually stopped being Mormons—that's enough for me. Even if they say that they didn't renounce mm. their their testimony, if you stop mm. being a Mormon when you believe, when you saw something supernatural, uh, that, that that's enough for me. That'd be like if any of the apostles or any any of the early Christians who claimed to see Jesus said, uh, "Oh, you know, um, you know, I still think I saw the risen Jesus. I still think he rose from the dead in glory and he's Lord of the world." But you know what? I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Yeah, I am going to be working. But gold, gold plates never impress me. Again, I, I, I parallel really, I think the, the more accurate parallel with Joseph Smith is the appearance of Moroni and the appearance of, of Jesus and God the Father that he claimed, um, that Joseph Smith claimed happened to him. And again, in those cases, we're dealing with just one eyewitness, and that's Joseph Smith. And so when we when we uh, look at Joseph Smith's character and we look at that the outcome of his life and we look at uh, contemporary testimonies of, of who he was and what he was like. I think we have every reason to believe that he, he was uh, either making it up or lying or or uh, or intentionally deceiving or deceived himself. But this was not a good man. This was not someone like Paul. This was not someone like uh, the earliest Christians that we have every reason to trust that they were they were uh, honest eyewitnesses and actually suffered and and um, and then gave their lives, sealing their testimony in their own blood. They weren't uh, just shot shot to death because they were sleeping with other people's mm-hmm. wives. Um, for those interested in this, also, I am going to be trying to get Rob Bowman on the show again. He did send me a copy of his, which I'm going to consider quite like He did send me a copy of his latest book where where he does compare the resume. Yeah, read it. It yeah. looks great. It's, it looks it's great. awesome. Have you read it yet? No, I haven't. I, yeah, I want to read it. It looks, it looks read excellent. It. It's one of the best ones I've read. Uh, so let's uh, talk then more about something else that can be compared because um, how about Marian apparitions? So many people claim to see the Virgin Mary. You have thousands of people and how many people are saw the dancing sun experience as well? And again, 
you don't believe these. So maybe you're just being inconsistent. Well, you know, with the Marian apparitions, what's interesting about those is, is uh, I, I really think those are the closest there is. I mean, of all the all the claims to the miraculous or supernatural that I, at least that I've studied, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm ignorant of a lot, so I could be educated on more. But of all that I've studied, I would say the only thing that has the same kind of evidential, not 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 the same exactly, but the the only one that reaches even close to the same kind of evidential claim as the resurrection appearances would be appearances mm-hmm. of Mary would be these, these claims of uh, people seeing Mary because you do have this extended period of time of individuals and large groups and some of those groups even included. I think I, I think the one in uh, Dale Allison talks about one of them. I can't remember which one it was. It was either Fatima or it was one of, one of the uh, the appearances and there were there were Muslims in the, in the audience. There were uh, uh, Jews in the audience and there were so there were a lot of people that definitely believe they saw something. So again, so so it gets to the fact of, you know, if I'm convinced, if I have all the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and I know that's true, well, this supernatural claim has some interesting things. And and one thing I like to point out is, if Mary did appear to people, would that give support to the resurrection of Jesus, or would that mean that Jesus probably didn't rise from the dead? Mm-hmm. I think that would uh, actually give support to the resurrection of Jesus. So, so I would just say I'm a kind of agnostic on some of those. I think some of those th- those appearances are pretty incredible, and people did, in large numbers, both see something. There's no doubt. Uh, did God send some of His saints, a saint like Mary, mm-hmm. to, to to people? And, you know, He can do that. And in fact, I, I do believe in also many of the stories in church history. There are many accounts where um, individuals believe that they had some sort of supernatural experience, uh, whether it was um, through through an angel or through uh, one of the saints of the past, like Joan of Arc, for example. That would be a, a good example that I would, I think the, the evidence for Joan of Arc's uh, hearing voices from uh, the saints and from uh, angels, and she, she believed Jesus spoke to her as well, the, the outcome of her life and what she accomplished as a 17-year-old illiterate poor peasant girl leading armies to win battle after battle. I mean, it's just incredible. So, so these are just some of the examples that I would point to in history where we do see the supernatural, where we do see God working. But I would see all of those within and consistent with a Christian uh, worldview. So so did you actually appear to people? I, I would I would be agnostic on some of those. But um, but but I think it's still, even if she did, it would be completely consistent with a Christian worldview. Yeah, my wife's interested in... Um, Eastern Orthodoxy, so she'd be much more open to this than I would, but at the same time, uh, I'm with you if if this kind of thing happened where my atheist friends have a lot more to lose than I do at this point. <laughs> That's if, right. If just one appearance like this is true, then that just means more evidence for Christianity. If it's false, we're aware we've still got the evidence for Christianity here. Now let's go to another one then here. UFO appearances, though, those happen pretty often. So, again, are, are you being inconsistent? Yeah, again, we don't have martyrs for the UFOs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, give me, give me, give me some martyrs for the UFOs, and and then maybe I'll I'll consider it. Uh, I think I think that's just you know, again, 
it seems to be something that's that's consistent with human nature, that human nature uh, is is fascinated by the paranormal, by the fantastic, by by strange things. And so you're going to have that. You have that in the ancient world. You have incredible statements of of all kinds of weird claims in the ancient world. Um, and and so you're going to have modern things like that as well. And so it doesn't convince. It's not going to me. It's going to be in any way convincing until uh, like Christianity and like like the resurrection appearances. Unless you're dealing with one, you have martyrs for it, but also you would have have to see it. Um, you know, have you know billions of people convinced it's true uh, from across the world and, and every different culture uh, saying that they're experiencing UFOs. You know, you, you just don't have the same kind of uh, evidential testimony that we have with Christianity, and whether it's Elvis or, or Bigfoot or uh, the Loch Ness monster or, or uh, or UFOs. So I, I just I just put that on the side of, of humans like the strange and the and the weird. I'm sure I'm not the only one. I wasn't here thing about that guy on the History Channel who just keeps saying aliens over and over. <laughs> I don't think I saw that. Yeah, there was a whole meme of him. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, the meme. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I have seen yeah. that. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, okay. So, let's look at all this. One other thing on the alien thing before I go on in that is something else interesting about it is that we are told today in our scientific world we should be even open to the idea of aliens. Now, I'm skeptical about their out there, but we are told we should be open. We even have scientific research going on. And yet, here are so many skeptics say, well, if anyone thinks they saw an alien, they're just stupid. Yeah, and I'm definitely open to it happening. I, I just, from all the things I've heard, it just seems uh, kind of ridiculous. You know, it just it's just, you know, the, the, the kind of claims of what, what they've seen and what they, you know, it's just really kind of fits with the time. Like, it fits with whatever the latest alien movie that came out. That's, that's what aliens look like when they mm-hmm. saw them. <laughs> so it's kind of unlikely if there are aliens i doubt that they look like anything from our from our science fiction films yeah, now let's get into towards the end of a book you kind of take on a more pastoral look of a matter let's talk about christianity itself you say that you should actually want christianity to be true why is that yeah you know i don't know if you saw it i, I wrote an article with uh, gospel coalition just recently, and I'm, I'm talking about how something I found fascinating, just, just reading, you know, the best-selling books that are out, listening to some of the top intellectuals out there, I'm consistently seeing them talk about primarily three things that, that they're longing for, that they're missing because most of the West, Europe and America and other, other parts of the West have, have kind of gone away from Christianity. And it would be one, meaning and purpose, you know, the, the meaning of life, knowing why we're here, what we're doing. Uh, the second would be forgiveness and redemption, you know, wanting to have forgiveness for their sins, wanting to have forgiveness for if they don't use the language of sins, for their guilt, for their shame. You know, all human beings feel that and they want someone to forgive them and they want to 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 experience that, 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 that idea of redemption. And then the third one is hope. They want hope for not just the present for, for our world right now, but also in the in the next life. They want to know that, you know, they're going to see their loved ones again. The, the, the idea of immortality, 
Uh, I even quote some of the some of the guys like uh, Yuval Noah Harari and some of the guys from Google. You know, their their hope is to solve death. You know, they have a hope that we're going to live to be 500 years old or we're going to live to be all mortal, where we'll we'll just live indefinitely unless we get killed in some way physically, and AI will solve all our problems. And so there's just this deep longing for all those things. And if Christ rose from the dead, we have all those things in its fullness. I mean, Jesus, just as Jesus said, I came to give them life and life to the full. We have it to the full. If Jesus rose from the dead, we have meaning and purpose for every moment of our lives. We have infinite forgiveness for our sins, for our guilt, for our shame. We have redemption and we have hope. We have hope for the present and we have hope for the future. No matter what happens, no matter what plagues or wars or or, or aliens or whatever happens, we know that Christ is going to return or that if we die, we're going to go to be with him. We have all the hope that we can ever ask for in Christ. And so, I mean, it just on, on a practical level, just just if Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, it really does fulfill all of our of humanity's hopes and dreams. I mean, going back, I mentioned how Gilgamesh, you know, the, the most ancient uh, uh, work of literature that we have uh, that, that that we've discovered is is the story of of Gilgamesh and how he went on on a quest to find uh, eternal life. He wanted to to live uh, immortal, and he found in the end that that he's going to die like everybody else. That that you're not you're not going to get immortal life. Well, that hope and that longing that all humans have have sought out for, uh, we we may have in Jesus, like like Shakespeare said. You know, uh, he said nobody's returned from that from that country, but uh, Jesus actually is the one who did return from that country, and and so we have all the hope in the world with him. But that that's kind of a, I'd say a pastoral mm-hmm. and practical aspect. If it's true, all of our hopes and dreams are. Yeah, fulfilled. we're getting caught up on releasing episodes, so I'm not sure when people listen to us. But this is the point because this is the the very sad week in the world of Christian apologetics that. Ravi Zacharias passed away, a great hero of mine. You can see my tribute of him on YouTube that I did. And yet, one of his favorite verses, if not his favorite one, even on his death, on his, his bed of suicide, where he came to Jesus, because I live, you will live also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Real life, true life. Yeah. Amen. That's right. And, and Ravi, Ravi said. He, he prayed to Jesus from that hospital bed. If you let me out of here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna never quit my pursuit of the truth. And he fulfilled that mm-hmm. promise, didn't he? Yeah. If all this is true, though, why is it that you think so many people don't even seem to want to come to Jesus, or even are just thankful that Christianity is true, or don't want it to be true? Yeah, that's a really important question, and I'd say there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, interestingly, we, we talked about Dan Barker at the beginning. You know, the debate I had with him, I actually it was the, it was probably the saddest moment in the debate, but it was my favorite moment of the debate. It was towards the end, but I because I, I thought it really captured everything about his life and what he's doing, and 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 that basically no evidence would ever make a difference for him because he basically admitted to me as I kept pressuring him with the evidence on the resurrection. He basically, he, he said directly, even if Jesus rose from the dead, I would not worship him. I would I think reject he said him. Something similar I don't care. Debate. Yeah. I don't care if Jesus rose from the dead. And, and amazingly, even after the debate, you know, I had a lot of my, I had a lot of atheist friends that were there as well. And they told me they were not with him. <laughs> 
you know, they, they made it clear. They said, oh, you know, if Jesus rose from the dead. That's everything. You know, that that's that's that that changes everything. You know, it's it's a true Damascus experience. And so so someone like someone like Dan, I mean, I, I get the impression from my experience with him that that he just has a lot of rage, a lot of anger against God. Don't know exactly where all that's from. But ultimately, I think that's probably one of the reasons people have a lot of rage and anger against God, whether it's something that happened, something that, that didn't happen, you know, some sort of problem of evil issue. Um, I think that's one. I think another thing is, is autonomy. You know, I think a lot of, I think, I think part of our sinful nature is, is a rebellious nature is a satanic type. We want to rebel against our creator. And so we don't want to submit. We don't want to humble ourselves. We want to exalt ourselves and we want to fight against, um, uh, uh, that, that surrender. And so I think that's, that's, uh, another reasons. And then, and then the love of sin, you know, there's the love of, yeah. The love of money, the love of power, the love of of of, of, of of lust, the love of so many different things in our world, I think, keep you from God. Uh, so sometimes people will find God because of those things. You know, that's the pro- whole prodigal story. You know, if you go deep enough into that into that mire, you know, you'll come out the other side repenting. But a lot of people don't get that deep. You know, a lot of people stay somewhere in between. You know, Job and Solomon. You know, if you're if you're a Solomon, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, you know, if you get to the the height of power and riches and glory and fame in this world, you will say meaningless, meaningless. And then if you get to the depth of, of misery like Job did, you know, you'll say, you'll put your hand over your mouth and you say, I spoke of things I did not know. I repent in dust and ashes. But most people, sadly, don't get to the depths of Job and they don't get to the heights of Solomon. And so they stay in that nebulous in between. And in so doing, they stay, Pascal said, distracted, distracted by the cares and the and the loves of this world. And so then they don't, they may, you know, if God grants them mercy, maybe they find him on the, on their deathbed, but they don't find him in this life because they keep being distracted over things. But, but yeah, I think, but I think every true seeker, every person who asks will receive and every person who knocks the door will be opened. Um, I, I like what Pascal says, Blaise Pascal. He says it really well, you know, that, that, uh, God gives just enough light for those who want it and just enough darkness for those who want to reject it. And I think that's just in my 20 years now of evangelizing and and sharing the gospel and, and being with believers and unbelievers that just, that, that really rings true to me experientially. That that seems right. You know, as a man who's married and I know you're married and I'm sure you're Miss Fada, let's face it in marriage, sexual activity is just awesome. And I really think that's yeah. I really think that's one of the number one things that keeps people away from Christianity is our strict stance on it. Uh, I know Don Johnson, his book "How to Talk to a Skeptic," talks about a guy who was apparently, I think, in youth ministry, and this boy in the youth group kept coming up to him with all these questions: Is Christianity relentless? And this guy was just getting frustrated with all these questions, and he was thinking there was something odd about them. And at one point, he just turned and said, How long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? And this guy just turns pale immediately. And that was the reason. I think uh, there are so many people out there that think, Yeah, Christianity is not worth giving that up. Yeah, no, I think, and I would put that under that, that third category I, I was talking about love yeah. of sin. I agree yeah. that that's a real strong one, especially for, for younger people who just don't know better. I would encourage people to read Tim Keller's, um, and really Tim and his wife, Kathy Keller, they wrote a mm-hmm. book called The Meaning of Marriage. Every time I've uh, married people, um, as a pastor, I've, mm-hmm. I've married you know many couples, and, and that's the book that I use for counseling with them, and it's just such a great book, and he has some just excellent, 
wisdom about one, just how terrible it really is for all the people who are just having sex freely outside of marriage and really how, how horrible that is for your life, not just in the present, but also for your future uh, marriage. And, and, um, and then how the glories and the, and the wonder and, and how wonderful uh, the love and the depth of intimacy and, 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 and really sexual pleasure and all the rest is in a long-term commitment in actual marriage. And that's been my experience. I, mm-hmm. I actually saved, my wife and I saved ourselves for marriage uh, praise the Lord, and and um, so did we. Yeah, go on. No, yeah, yeah. I was just to say, and so you know, we've experienced that. You know, we're so thankful that that happened, and mm-hmm. then it's been so thankful. You know how wonderful it is. I like to, I like to use that as a you know a good example of God's commandments that are you know so difficult to follow. You know, God says, "Be fruitful and multiply." You know, what a what a difficult commandment. What a mean God. <laughs> what a mean God to make us uh, you know go and be fruitful and multiply with. With the love of our life, you know, such a such a such a rough and mean God there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. You know, His commandments are not burdensome. <laughs> <laughs> they are light and easy. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I I can't help but laugh at that one. Yeah, now let's try and get back to the points here with this. There is an answer you respect, though, and like you explained, when you give all these evidence before and that's suppose you're talking with someone who's a, a skeptic and you give all this evidence from they say and you say well what do you think really happened to Jesus Jesus and he says gee I don't know why do you celebrate that answer one I, I, I do respect that answer one because I, I think it's an kind of an epistemic humility you know mm-hmm. it shows humility in the person by not trying mm-hmm. to give you know some like I said, I'm using more positive, like like uh, just some type of answer to fill in the void to, to mm-hmm. try to try to explain away the evidence. To me, it shows someone who who's really seeking, who's really thinking, who's taking taking the evidence very seriously. And it's really the you know it's it's it was the response of the original apostles. So I mean, I think we have to be very you know uh, patient and loving with with people who are who are not ready to take that 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 faith step. Uh, because that was the way Thomas was, <laughs> we know that, but it was also the way all the apostles were when, when the women first told them that Jesus rose from the dead, they thought they were crazy. They were not convinced, you know, they, they were not, you know, immediately saying, oh yes, just like we thought, you know, they, they were, they were, you know, in no way convinced that, that Jesus rose from the dead until he actually appeared to them and gave them many convincing proofs. And so what I would share with someone who's that way, I would just encourage them, you know, I would maybe even compliment them on that, on, on being open and and you know agnosticism is is appropriate right now as you're you're just dealing with this but i would encourage you further i would encourage you to keep you know read the word of god to seek seek christ to see if he's real to ask him to reveal himself to you because i think jesus isn't going to do exactly what he did for thomas he's not going to just appear to everybody who who asked him to but i do think jesus will give everyone exactly what they need if they can jesus will give them what they need to, to know that he is Lord and God. Yeah, and the, uh, I keep thinking also right now at this point about what um, Ravi Zacharias once said, said, if you ever want to see if Christianity is true, just read all the counter-explanations for what happened, and you're, you'll walk away pretty convinced. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great way to say it. Okay, so... We're getting close to the end. We got maybe a couple minutes. What is 
what what is the main message then in a couple minutes or less you really want people to get out of this book? I mean, what's what do you hope would happen to someone when they pick up this book? How do you think it would be different when they put it down at the end? Yeah, I'd say I'm, I'm really I've got a kind of a twofold audience here with the book. Uh, I, kind of obvious. Uh, one would be the Christian and one would be the skeptic. So Christian, what I really want the Christian to walk away with is just to be better equipped. I want them to really know the evidence we have. I want them to know that the bedrock source, the bedrock facts, the bedrock truth of the resurrection. I mean, I, I want them to know how strong it really is. And I, you know, the, 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 in the depth of their being in the depth of their heart for them to, to really know that Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive. He is with us until the very end of the age. Just like he said, he was one day in glory that is still to come and that he is available for them to, to call upon, to, to worship at any moment, uh, at any point, at any point of the day. Um, throughout their lives. And so I just want, want the, that those, the floors of their faith in their heart to just go down as deep as it'll go. And so people will be truly convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and, and that they would be convinced that he who died for them and rose again, uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 14 and 15. So that, that'd be the, the Christian side. And, and really also to for the Christian to then take these uh, points to their skeptical friends and to challenge them. And then for the skeptic, that's what I would want, want to get the skeptic to, to the point of agreeing with the historical facts, knowing that this is the, the common ground historical facts. You cannot deny that Jesus was crucified. You cannot deny these earliest followers claimed he rose from the dead, that they 